Hey everyone, welcome to Bible Discoveries Weekend Show. I'm Corey. I still have a bit of a cold. I apologize. I'm gonna try not to sniffle. I'm gonna try not to cough, but it is what it is. Luckily, my kids are better and Matlock was able to join me again this week. So hey, Matlock. Hey, what's going on? You know, yeah, same sick. old. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> but I'm excited to be here nevertheless and yeah. to be able to discuss some of your questions. Yeah, it's good. Uh, Questions look good this week. Yeah, less questions than last week. Less questions, but but I think we They're can broader. Yes, I think they're a bit more broad, so there's yeah. more room to play around. Exactly. So let's start. So if you were tuning in or you were following Bible Discovery, we were uh, reading this week Deuteronomy 11 to Joshua 4. So we have questions that we answer per week related to that. So this helps people catch up, remember what they read in scripture or whatever. If you just have a, a question that is difficult and it pertains to these scriptures, feel free to comment in the section below. We always will try to our best to address them, whether or not it's the next episode or the following. Okay. All right. Are you ready to jump let's in? Just, let's just jump in. I'm going to lob one your way first. Okay, Matt sure. Walk. All right. Uh, this question right. is from Meg, and right. she says, how do I know that Jesus is not enticing me to serve another God besides Yahweh? Right. Right. Okay. And the context is Deuteronomy 13, specifically, is what... This is listed as. So let's look at this. Just really quick as I get Deuteronomy 13 up right here. And, right, so it says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or, or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and he says, Let us go after other gods, um, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet, of that dreamer of the dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you, to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Okay. That's clearly what right. Mike's referring to. So, go ahead. Sure. Right. So, I'm just saying, like, from the perspective of Judaism, like, modern Judaism does reject Jesus yes. as a prophet on these grounds, uh, you know, saying that he's claiming to be the Son of God. He's clearly not. He's clearly not the Messiah. He's clearly teaching a different you know, religion yeah. and different structure. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of angles. How do we know this, that Jesus is the Messiah and not a false prophet? Right, there's a whole bunch of angles we can go down. Like, does the Old Testament even have the Son of God? Does it have a, right. a, a pre-incarnate Christ of any kind? Like, is there a God figure, a Christ figure in the Old Testament? Mm -hmm. I, there is. Um, that's a couple things to start off with first. I'm going to read, one, uh, they were anticipating a new prophet. And they're anticipating a new covenant. Those two things specifically. Those things were prophesied. Those things were prophesied by Moses. Right. So let's, uh, and Jeremiah. So let's go to Deuteronomy 18. And that's important because if they thought that this, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant was the be all and end all, mm -hmm. then there wouldn't be a need to prophesy for a new covenant, nor would there be a need to prophesy for a new prophet. So let me, let me just explain this and read this text. So I'm going to read uh, Deuteronomy 18 verses 15 to 22. Um, so I'll begin in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on that day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. And whoever I uh, will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that the, that same prophet shall die. And if you say to your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the, word, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Okay. And that fear comes to it with authority, that reverent fear. So when we're talking about this, okay, so they're looking for a prophet like Moses specifically, who is going to come, who is going to be raised up from among Israel. He's not going to be some new guy from far off. He's going to be from among Israel. So that's one thing that they're anticipating, okay? So, but with ever, when the new prophet like Moses rises up, right, that means there will, there will be a new covenant that comes with it because like Moses came a covenant, right? So it's a prophet, now not just a prophet, you know, like Jeremiah or Isaiah or something like that. It's a prophet like Moses 
one who's going to bring a new covenant. Which so, is why, just as yeah, in addition to what you're saying, when we get to the Gospels, people are constantly asking. First, they ask John the Baptist, but then they ask Jesus, who are you? Are you the prophet? Are you Moses? Are you Elijah? Are yes. you the, like they're they're asking, and this is why. Yeah, this is exactly why. Because they're anticipating the new prophet to come with the new covenant. Mm-hmm. So here's Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, Moses, all right, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write in, the, in write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Right, And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, for the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more and it continues the point here to be made is the covenant is related to this prophet like moses and here we already see that the the god's gonna how is he gonna write the law in their hearts through the spirit through the holy spirit we already see these things being fulfilled so whatever a prophet comes in they're going to announce uh, not only give you the proper interpretation of the text because they're speaking on god's behalf and just making up their own ideas they're also going to come with, uh, as he said, signs and wonders that'll come true, right? Uh, what are the signs? What are the wonders? The Holy Spirit is a sign, right, of this new covenant that's to come. Um, but also, too, uh, uh, prophecies that will come true when, in, in Matthew 24, when he says there will be not one stone left on this uh, on the temple, and the temple is going to be destroyed within this generation. And sure enough, within 30 years, which is, you know, argue, which is, debatable but it seems like the most common sense is with 30 years to 40 years was considered a uh a uh, a jewish uh generation okay and within 40 years the temple is destroyed 8070 and christ said those words we believe around 8030 to 8033 in that zone so the point here is that within a generation with a christ says in matthew 24 the temple is destroyed which is what he predicted and in fact that's why christians actually left Jerusalem at the time, knowing that Christ's words were going to come true, and they left eighty left Jerusalem before all the giant massacre of eighty seventy. So it's there's verifiable in church history that um, Christians heeded the words of Christ as a prophecy, and it came true. So you have prophecy that comes true. You have the signs that come true. You have a new covenant that that happens that comes true with the word of God and the Holy Spirit being planted in your heart. Um, so that's what I would say. And also to the, the person of Christ, the character of Christ. Uh, they resemble, as we talked about this in the past, like the, the God that you read about, the God, the father of Genesis. Do you see what I'm yeah. saying? So go ahead. You want to say something? No, it's okay. No. You can finish your point. No, yeah, that's it. So it's like he he resembles um, and everything he says because he is God. Uh, and so that that's kind of, that that's the big sticking point here because people are afraid if I worship God, if I worship Christ, that are not worshiping, worshiping God, but it's like, no, Christ is God. He's God incarnate. And we see this even in the Old Testament, where we see the angel of the Lord. Okay, even Exodus 3, where uh, the, uh, when the, the burning bush is presented, it's the angel of the Lord is in the burning bush. Mm-hmm. And the angel of the Lord is God. See what I'm saying now? So the angel of the Lord is in the burning bush. It's also the, the angel of the Lord who gets worshipped by Joshua. Um and only God can receive worship. It's the angel of the Lord appears in several different places. And it's this, this angel of the Lord has a human form, like pre-incarnate Christ. So we see uh, this, it's so much so that this, that this, um, that this uh, pre-incarnate Christ, this angel of the Lord in human form, had so much power and authority that in rabbinic scholarship at the time of the Second Temple period, there were many people Jews who believed in two powers in heaven. And this is documented by Jewish scholars today. Alan Segal, he's passed away, he's late, but Jewish scholars uh, identify this, that in Jewish theology, in the Second Temple period, during the time of Christ, there was the belief there were two powers in heaven because of this whole issue. There's people, there's people are worshiping the, the, um, the angel of the Lord, which you can't, because you only should Who worship God. Worship. And yeah. he accepts worship, exactly. Whereas all the other angels do not. Yeah, that's a key factor. 
And um, and that's really important, mm-hmm. right? Because this angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. And so we see that happening. And so around 100 AD, it's documented that the Jews rejected this two powers in heaven theology because it sounded too much like Christ. Right. So anyways, that's a whole other thing in itself. That's as quickly as I can put it. Corey, do you have anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, I, w- I would just say you have to know the cl- the actual claims of Jesus. You have to go in and you have to read the Gospels and launch a study of the Gospels for yourself and see if whether or not Jesus' teachings illuminate the Old Testament in the proper way, right? Because your point is taken that Deuteronomy 13 says that prophecies can come true Miracles can be done by people who are evil. So now I, I think I think to be fair, I think Christians could la- la- launch the argument, yes, but God didn't rise those people from the dead, but he did rise Jesus Christ from the dead. So while Jesus's prophecies and miracles may not be a check mark, a, a godly check mark on his life, certainly the resurrection from the dead is. But back to this Deuteronomy 13 in terms of um, evaluating a prophet and whether or not this prophet is leading you deceitfully into the worship of other gods, you have to become really, really acquainted with what Jesus is saying, what that meant in the time period. And the only way to do this is to launch a study of the New Testament for yourself and and a study of the Gospels for yourself and see whether or not Jesus is fairly illuminating the Old Testament scriptures. See whether or not he is fairly critiquing the pharisaical outlook of and teaching on the law of Moses and, and, and the Judaism of his day and see what kind of claims and changes the New Testament makes. Uh, and uh, I, I really do believe, because I have done this, I really do believe that as you do that, you'll become more and more convinced that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and that he is restoring proper worship of God, the only true, true God. So that's what I would say. I would just encourage a study of the New Testament, of the Gospels, uh, and and a, and, a, and a fair look at at what the New Testament is adding or how it is continuing the Old Testament. That's right. I think that's a good assessment. Yeah. Yeah, because God doesn't expect you just to blindly jump into things. Yeah. Right. He, right. He's, he equips you to assess things properly. Now, also, if you're being honest, and and as you're studying the Gospels, Meg, I would encourage you to take a look at how the Gospel authors are setting you up to understand Jesus, because they believe that Jesus is this prophet like Moses. He is the arbiter of the new covenant. So they go to great pains to show us how Jesus was like Moses, how Jesus was the true Son of God. Uh, you know, following in Israel's footsteps. And that's always a really interesting angle to look at it as well. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's right. good. Corey, let me ask you a question then. Sure. Okay. This pertains to Deuteronomy 16, and it's from Linda. Okay. Mm-hmm. Why did God place such emphasis on unleavened bread? Right. So Deuteronomy 16 is the festival of unleavened bread, correct? It's Passover? I believe so. Yes. Okay. All right. So, 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 Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, so according to Deuteronomy 16, the unleavened portion of unleavened bread was to remind the future generations of Israel of the haste in which, the the hurry, the great hurry and speed with which they left Egypt. Uh, And the reason why unleavened bread is a sign of this for anyone who's ever tried to make sourdough bread. It's because you know you have to leave your flour and water mixture out for a long time to let it rise and 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 being and feeding it uh, <coughs> flour and and they knew this in the ancient world through trial and error. They knew this. So leaven takes a while, and then once you get that, you can take. Um, leavened piece of dough and put it in an unleavened piece of dough. And after many days, again, it's risen and you can bake it and it's ready. So this takes stability. This takes time in one spot to do. And Israel did not have time to do that. So unleavened bread is still edible. It's just not as fluffy. So they ate unleavened bread in memory of the speed with which Jesus, uh, God took them 
out of the Exodus. Now, it is also true that we see unleavened bread showing up in other sacrificial contexts, or I should say offering contexts within ancient Israel. Like if you check out Numbers chapter 6, uh, one of the... Um, one of the things that a Nazar uh, after someone had taken a Nazarite vow on completion of their Nazarite vow, part of their offering to finish off their Nazarite vow was unleavened bread or unleavened cakes as an offering. So there's there is a sacrificial element of this as well, um, and we see Jesus and even Paul in the New Testament using leaven as uh, a symbol. So leaven in and of itself is not evil. It's something that, that you know, God created to make our bread fluffier and, and boost the nutritional contents of uh, flour and water when we mix it together. So boost the nutritional context of wheat. Uh, but it is a convenient symbol for sin, right? Jesus says to his disciples, avoid the yeast of the Pharisees. And in 1 Corinthians, let me go to it. 13. 1 Corinthians 5. Oh. Verse 8. The uh 1 Corinthians 5, 8. Not chapter 8, Corey. Um, the Apostle Paul uses it and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, when he's talking about so he, in Corinth, he's dealing with sin, pretty egregious sin that the church is tolerating and just allowing to be a part of their everyday lives. And he says this in verse six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So we see leaven here being um, compared to sin. So just as if you were to leave a little bit of yeast, a little bit of leaven in, in, a, in a bunch of dough, Pretty soon that yeast would spread out through the whole lump of dough. If you leave a little bit of sin unchecked in your life, pretty soon the sin spreads throughout your whole life and you become sinful, right? All of you. He continues in verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And then he goes on to talk about Christ as the Passover lamb, right? Because remember the feast of unleavened bread happens with the Passover. So we see what Paul is doing here. Now he's tying in Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's likening yeast or leaven to sin and evil and the lack of that to being sincere and truthful, right? So again, it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with yeast, but because of its physical properties, it lends itself well to be used as an image of sin. Because again, if I allow, if I have a pet sin that I right. really like, I'm just going to keep this. I'll get rid of all my other sin, but I've got this little pet sin that I really, really like. So I'm just going to keep it. If you do that, it's like yeast. It's going to spread through your entire life. You can't just keep it contained. That's not the nature of yeast. That's not the nature of sin. Right. So it's used in a really interesting way. It is. And to add some other things to that. So yeah. when they, Israel had to leave in haste, Right, so that's the reason why it was mm -hmm. unleavened instead of leavened. So something like you were yep. saying, nothing wrong. They ate leavened bread. Absolutely. But then they, but specifically for the Passover, there was no time. Yeah. So this hasty, this like hasty leaving process, uh, created a symbol for Israel to be like, whenever we use unleavened bread, it reminds them of God's deliverance. Yes. Now, in a similar way, when Christ is in doing his sermon on the mount and he's speaking to the, the five thousand, whatever it is, and um, he has the bread, right? He's talking with the yeast of the Pharisees. Yeah. Right. Um. And what's interesting here is you have this thing where he's he's multiplying the the, the loaves of bread, whereas the, the Pharisees, what does Paul say? Like love edifies, but knowledge puffs up. You have this concept of love and puffing mm -hmm. up. So you have this like the bread itself just gets puffed up in and of itself, whereas Christ multiplies the bread. You see what I'm saying? And, right, and, right, 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 right. I see it. what you're saying. So you have this um just even just like a, a basic symbolic uh uh image you could say of just how they work in, in themselves 
But yeah, I think that you you just nailed on the head. I think that makes the most sense. Yeah, yeah. and I think I think it's also interesting from Jesus's perspective, and from the perspective of people alive at Jesus's time, they associated unleavened bread with the Passover and yes. the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? And right. paste. Right. But then when Jesus associates yeast with the teachings of the Pharisees, everyone knew that the teachings of the Pharisees had developed over hundreds of years. Yes. So time. So the Exodus happened with no time. God acted hastily and, and out this, from it yeah, came right. the law. Right. The Pharisees have had time and that's made leavened bread, which seems fancy. It seems right. nice but it's actually corrupted and right. Jesus begins to talk. So that's another level of the, teams, yes. from the from the perspective of, of Jesus's audience that would have made them think about that, I think. No, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. Okay, Matlock, I want to ask oh, right, you sure. another question. This time from sure. Deuteronomy chapter 19. Okay. De Deuteronomy I chapter see. 19 is about the yeah, cities right. of refuge. Yes. Okay. So Levitical cities of refuge. Should we, Matlock, should we have cities of refuge today? Right. And if Old Testament laws are, are societal and legal by design, in what way are Old Testament laws applicable to our society and laws? Okay, so let's start off with the first one. I'm glad you said Levitical cities of refuge, because should we have, uh, open bracket, Levitical, end bracket, cities of refuge today? Yeah, because, because the cities of refuge were overseen by the Levitical priesthood. That's exactly right, because you can have yes. the concept of it being like, oh, if you accidentally kill someone, go to this city, right? Right. But but it's like okay, well, not just any city. That's and there right. Was only six Are you going to wait for the mayor to die before you go back? But to that the wouldn't city? even work. <laughs> no, yeah, kidding. it has to be the high priest. No, I know you know what I'm saying. It's yeah. Like, it's like, how do we implement that today? Because we're not under the Mosaic law. So yeah. But there are things that are like the the principle behind the city of your refuge is applied. So for instance, I have witness protection. Uh, it's not quite the same thing. It's kind of like a reversal, but it's, it's, in a nutshell. You witness a murder, right? You can get killed because you can witness a murder. So they put you in witness protection. They send you somewhere else so they don't know your identity to protect you from someone who's going to kill you, right? That's essentially, that's very similar to cities of refuge. So that's applied already. That's just looking at justice, right? Uh, because we know someone that murdered intentionally doesn't get cities of refuge. You have to do it unintentionally. It's just manslaughter. So, uh, so another option, uh, sanctuary city. Some people, you know, they can... Debate about whether that that's right or wrong. The point of sanctuary cities is another form of cities of refuge, you could say. Uh, another form of it in the church history was sanctuary in general. So if you're running uh, from something in a sin, blood cannot be slain inside a church, inside a cathedral, any right, inside of a parish. So if you're running and you let's say I don't know why you have to be running, you could be walking, but you go inside a sanctuary. If uh, someone's if someone's coming to kill me, I'm running. Yeah, that's right. It depends. I'm running. The, yeah, it depends on your context. But. So let's say you go inside a, a, a church building mm -hmm. and you yell sanctuary. You're going to be protected. You can be there as long as you can. Well, that was like the tabernacle as yeah. well. You weren't supposed to spill blood in the tabernacle. Exactly. Solomon so, did though. Right. Sorry. But you have those principles, of course. <laughs> you have those principles. And that's a beautiful thing in my mind, right? Anyways, you have those principles that are laid out. That the church is a, is a place of peace. Mm -hmm. And, you know... It really makes you think about, okay, so what does that mean in terms of its re the church's relationship to the state if someone who's uh, an offender of the state can stay inside a church and be protected, right? So that's important because for, for uh, even in medieval times when the church and state relationship was thicker, you could say, uh, much uh, they're shaking hands, um, the criminals could still be protected in, in sanctuary. And it was the priest's job at that point to speak to the, to the criminal or potential, or you might not even be a criminal, someone who's running after sanctuary, uh, speak to them and have them repent of their sins, have them come to Christ, or um, uh, have them even um, uh, 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 confess their guilt, essentially, and give themselves in. So it's, but at the same time, the person there is protected. So what the point here to highlight is that there was a d distinction between um, the Christian church and the state right there. There was a distinction to be made. Um, and that's what's uh, important there. Uh, now, how does that connect to the cities of refuge? I don't think that you could have a one-for-one -one cities of refuge today. There are principles you can apply from it, but you can't just copy and paste it. Yeah. We don't have our high priest is in heaven, so yeah. you, you just doesn't work the same. And the right? main, so the main issue that the cities of refuge were dealing with was the guilt of bloodshed. Right. So this idea was that. Human spilt 
human blood equals sin, Hmm. equals guilt. And the only time you could spill human blood without incurring guilt upon yourself was if you were spilling that human blood during capital punishment that was deserved. Mm -hmm. So if you were executing a murderer who actually was a murderer, that then that that was expunging the blood that that murderer had unjustly spilled. So the cities of refuge, when you read Deuteronomy 19, it literally says, um, hold on, let me, I, I'm going to find sure. it here. In verse, in verse 10, lest, uh, he, he's, he's going through all the laws of the, of the Levitical cities of mm. refuge. And then in verse 10, he says, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. So the idea is that the people who were going to these cities of refuge were not actually guilty of the blood that they spilt because they did not intend to spill the blood. It was an accident. Yeah. So this is so the word is manslayer in Deuteronomy 19. Right. So not murderer, but a manslayer, someone who did not intend to kill this person, accidentally killed this person. They can flee to the city of refuge because otherwise within this culture, the culture of the ancient Near East, forget Israel for a second. It's the entire culture of the ancient Near East that included Israel. Israel was part of that. Right. The clo- a, a relative of the person who was murdered could by, by common societal law, kill that person, right. kill the person who, if they witnessed it, they could kill the person who killed their family member. Okay. So that is stopping the avenger of blood from killing the manslayer because it would be unjust. Spilling more blood then because it was accidentally spilt in the first place would bring blood guilt on the whole land of Israel. So this is dealing with blood guilt. So, you know, I think in our Western societies today, there, there are things that we can do to apply this concept of how do we not spill innocent human blood before God? How do we not do that? I think there are a lot of ways yeah. <laughs> that we cannot do that, but I don't think it's starting with creating something like a city of refuge. Yeah, and honestly, today it's kind of, it's it's fundamentally different too. Like we have look at our transportation, like like right. if you needed to, like if you did it, like personally, if you did accidentally kill someone in that city, I don't think I'd want to live in that city anymore. Mm-hmm. Personally, I'd want to leave. Right, even if you were convict, uh, not convicted, but you were, you were released of all charges and everything was fine. I wouldn't want to be in a, in a place that reminded me of mm-hmm. this terrible failure of mine, uh, even if it was accidental. Like, you just don't want to be reminded of it. Um, so I think just very practically, you can apply the principle of Cities of Refuge just on your own. Right. Especially with how easy it is to move nowadays. Like, you can fly to Europe if you wanted to. Like, within seven hours, it's If you had enough money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. You know what I'm saying. I'm just saying. It's like, it's way, it's way radically different. Then, uh, you know, you, you walk in for a week to get from city to city or something. Also, keep in mind, like, practically, Israel is such a small place yeah. that you could get. Okay, so uh, I think it's Deborah Cantrell. I think this is where I'm, re- I'm remembering this, this stat from. But essentially, on horseback, every major city of Israel was half an hour horse ride like fast mm. chariot ride away right. from one another right not so in canada where no. we live no not so no so practically drive nine different. hours just to yeah, just to go fishing just to get out yeah. of our province I'm just joking. sometimes yeah. in a certain yeah. way that you, uh, i know you travel. seriously yeah. seriously Ontario's like here i know to Florida. it's huge it's huge i know all right uh, there's also a second part of this question so if this old testament laws which i'm, I'm just going to rule out cities of refuge oh, so anyways if the old testament laws are societal and legal by design in what way are the Old Testament laws applicable to our society and laws today? So I would say, take the cities of refuge. We talk about the principles can apply. Yeah. So there are principles in the, Old Testament, in the Old Testament laws that can apply, but you can't do obviously like sacrifices. Like that just doesn't work. So there's some laws that can apply. There's some laws that don't. Uh, then you have to ask yourself, okay, so then what in principle applies? Be well, careful about spilt human blood. <laughs> the deep moral principles. That's right. Uh, uh, that the permeate the scriptures, the ones that are obviously intuitive to all people. And even the ones you can read about the New Testament where Paul says these things are marked, uh, are, are evil. 
They're, they're right, but obviously there's a hierarchy to these things because I guess we saw with the manslaughtering, killing someone is one thing, but murdering someone intentionally, of course, um, is different. The, yeah. the result is the same, the outcome is the same, but the intentions one, matter. The intentions matter. Where one is a significantly bigger sin than the other. So there's degrees of sin that we have to factor into here. Um, Human life is sacred. Yeah. I think you can you you see that all throughout the Old Testament, but you see that with the cities of refuge. Human life is sacred. It matters. Our justice system matters. Yeah. And intention also matters. Human intention matters. When yes, it does. When you're delivering justice. It does. And then, in fact, that's how you know, that's how you can apply mercy. Yeah. So it's like justice itself, mercy is a violation of justice in like a raw systematic way. In other words, oh, this person did this, this person has to go there. This person killed someone, they have to go to jail, okay, or prison. Doesn't matter. That's justice. However, or this person killed someone, they get killed themselves, okay? However you want to handle that. That's justice. Mercy looks at the intentions of the heart and evaluates, okay, well, while that's the case, right, it goes it goes over and above the judgment process. And it says, no, I'm gonna show mercy. He might deserve this, but we're gonna we're gonna do this. And it mitigates or lessens what you deserve. So in other words, we deserve punishment and death as Christ as just being human. Right, we deserve to go to hell, be doing evil things. However, Christ saved us; we don't deserve that. Right, that's mercy. We depend on the mercy of Christ, we're in the mercy of God. So, uh, because we depend on mercy and not on judgment, because what does James say? Mercy triumphs over judgment. The point here to be said is that intentions are what help make mercy not violate justice, because justice is pretty binary. It's like you know, you put on a scale; it just has to be equally measured: an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That's technically justice. But mercy. When it cuts in there, right, it changes that. It does. It's no longer an eye for an eye exactly, or tooth for tooth exactly. Right? It depends on on what it is. Uh, so mercy can modify those scales, so to speak, in a, in a just way, ironically. So, anyways, that's it. So mercy uh, is, is a factor there. But when it comes to these, kind of round it back in to these Old Testament laws um, applying today, yeah, there are some things that apply today, and things that should apply today. Uh, for instance, don't worship. Like in terms of like, in terms of if we have a Christian society or not, one of those is you worship God, <laughs> right? You don't worship other pagan gods or whatever it is. So it really comes down to what's your society built on? Is your society Christian? Is it not Christian? Um, so there's a bunch of other factors that have to go in there because the Ten Commandments would be applicable more so in a Christian society than clearly they would be in, let's say, a non-Christian society, uh, which is what we're seeing that we're developing into. So. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. It's like they're only as applicable as your, as the heart of the society itself. So you can't just smack laws on something and expect that to fully change everything. It'll help some things because laws can be helpful. As I've spoken this in the past, having anti-abortion laws are helpful for the people who want to commit abortion. Right? They, they're like, oh, I, I just need to get rid of this child or whatever it might be. They might be sad or whatever it is. Okay, there could be any a number of reasons and motivations behind the abortion. But the anti-abortion laws protect not only the child, but the mother from a deeper problem of grief, which can come afterwards. So it's actually beneficial, despite it going against, let's say, our will at a particular time. That's a deeper discussion. But the point is that these laws can be beneficial to you, and they can be good to you, even if we don't want them. Uh, the difficulty is about uh, in what ways should we apply them? That is like, that is literally people writing books about this all day. So we could be here all day discussing each facet of society, each sphere of society, kind of going over, okay, how do these really apply? I just don't think there's time to do it. I think it comes down to discernment, the will of God, uh, you know, it, you know, what God permits us to be able to handle, what God permits um, uh, our world right now. Yeah. Be, I don't know, there's, there's so many factors there. We have to be just seeking out. If we seek after Christ fully, and as as we read earlier with Jeremiah thirty one, the laws will be in your heart. Yeah. If we seek after Christ fully, these this things becomes a non issue. This yeah, these things will just be implemented, right? Yeah. These things are more so, the, the, right? It, they they will be into, implemented naturally as a true Christian society comes about. Yeah. Um, it's having, not something that we have to force into being, I don't believe. And I think at worst, it can be a distraction if we're like, oh my goodness, we have to be Israel 2.0. We have to apply the old covenant now to the new covenant. 
but that's nowhere in the new covenant. Like we have our mission from Christ and we better stick with it, which is of course to go out into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation and make disciples. Right, and, and, but yeah, and, but these laws that we have here are, are they can have a long-lasting witness to those afterwards. As we've seen, there's people now who are like we who aren't Christian. They're like we actually need Christian society back because the laws they had were just. They're but not even corrupt. more than a Christian society. We need Christians. Oh, of course, because Christians. Well, if 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 we you have, can't have a Christian society without Christians. That's what I'm trying to say. So right. yeah, like if we if like if the if the Kingdom of God grows, the right. natural outcropping of that will be our cultural change, right. our cultural shift. So the point here is how which our they, laws will follow. Right. And how they apply in terms of their, I think the laws that we make for society, even are, if they're just, if they're of God, even if they're in a non-Christian world, can be a witness to those who aren't Christian. And that's what we see happening. So they're actually an apologetic in my mind um, and a, a tool for evangelism. So I don't view it as um, counter ends or anything like that. Anyways, but we could talk about this all day. Corey, we just got to keep moving. Okay? Yeah, let's move on. Okay, so Deuteronomy 34. Um, why was Moses not permitted to enter the promised land over such a minuscule sin? Right. Okay, so I don't think it was a minuscule sin at all. Um, if we go back to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, uh, Moses is going over with Israel why that generation of Israelites was not going into the promised land. And it was because they rebelled against God. Um, and he, he said, he, I'm trying to find it. He, he also talks about how he himself, even he was disqualified for their sake. Uh, and you can you can read that in Deuteronomy chapter one. Uh, even Moses was disqualified for the people's sake uh, for not going into the promised land. And I think that's interesting that there's this element of even if you are a friend of God that speaks to God face to face, because God, uh, we see this in numbers when um, Miriam and Aaron make a power play against Moses. God says to Miriam and Aaron, I speak to Moses differently than I speak to the prophets. Because Miriam was a prophet. He says, I speak to prophets in dreams and vaguely. Vaguely. But I speak to Moses face to face, plainly. That's really interesting, the concept of prophets versus what Moses was. Moses was a prophet, but he was different than other prophets. So then there's this idea that even someone who is a friend of God, who speaks, who God speaks to plainly in clear language, face to face, even they are not exempt from sin. Sin still disqualifies. And if we want to look at the sin that Moses committed against God in order to not be admitted into the promised land, we find that in Numbers chapter 20. Um, and of course, God told him to speak to the rock. And Moses defies God and strikes the rock. And it uses, Numbers 20 uses language that elsewhere talks about people rebelling. Okay? So in verse in Numbers 20, verse 11, it says, And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. So this idea of lifting up your hand. Other places in the Old Testament, I encourage you to do a word study on it and look it up where it talks about people lifting up their hand, it's always in defiance, in rebellion. So this is Moses lifting up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. So this is in rebellion against God, defiance of the word of God, because he's angry with the people. It still works. Right, God still makes water come out of the rock and the congregation drink and their and their livestock. Who is Christ? So that's another story. Yes, it is another story. Um, verse twelve says, "And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given you." Uh, and they called the waters bitter where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them, he showed himself holy. So we see Moses defying God. 
So Moses launched his own mini rebellion against God. God told him how to deal with the people. And Moses is like, no, I'm going to deal with the people my way. He defied God. He knew better and he did it because he was angry. And so he was disqualified from the promised land on account of the people. So if they were disqualified for, for, for rebelling against God, so was Moses. And the only people from that generation to make it into the promised land were the only two people who in the face of death said, no, we still need to go into the promised land because God said. And that was Caleb and Joshua. They said, no, well, I know it looks like we're going to die, but God said to go, so we got to go. They're the only people from that generation who made it because they trusted God instead of defying his word. So it, it seems on the surface of it like a minor infraction, but in reality, we're, we Moses and, and the author of Numbers, uh, through the Holy Spirit, is showing how Moses rebelled against God, Yeah, at least in this good. one area. Okay, Matlock, Joshua yeah. 2. Last question. Last question for you. All right. If it is forbidden to lie in the Ten Commandments, then how come Rahab was considered righteous when she lied? Mm. The age-old question, to lie or not to lie. When is it okay right. to lie? I guess it's just a contradiction. We're just going to go over that. No. <laughs> there is okay. no answer. No, I, I, okay. So I, it comes down no. to a couple things. One, there is. Uh, priority. Mm-hmm. She prioritized life over a lying, you know, what's honor among thieves. She's She got to lie to these people and save people's lives, which is a better thing to do, or tell them the truth, right? Now, she's not, no, she has, like we talk about this mustard seed of faith. It's not like she, it's like, well, she's not consciously thinking, if I tell them the truth here, I'm going to spare these guys' lives because God will... She's not thinking... She's not from our... She's not from Israel. She's not from the culture at all. She's just thinking, I need to save these guys' lives. Yep. That's all she's thinking, right? So that's what she applies. So the priority of life over a, a white lie, you could argue, is what's taken there. But now... Okay. So she also was not held to the Ten Commandments. She was not bearing... She wasn't not lying, sure, but she wasn't an Israelite, right? She wasn't bound to the same covenant the Israelites were here. So here the question is... If it's forbidden in the Ten Commandments, then how come Rahab could lie? It's like, well, she. But it would still be true. But if the if the Ten Commandments represent God's morality, it would still be wrong. Universally, it still is wrong. wrong. It still is wrong. But you get put into a situation where you have kind of no choice but to do something. Mm-hmm. So, and that's kind of what life is. Life is getting put into situations where you don't know really what to do, and you try to do the best with what you got. Right. It's the lesser of two evils. It's the lesser of two evils. Yeah. But anyways, mm-hmm. cheap joke. But. Yeah, it's the lesser of two evils. So she lies to save lives because that's the bigger priority here, mm-hmm. right? Because um, she knows that these people are also from God. So there's, there's a little bit of, of faith that's happening there. She goes, I heard that you, uh, everyone's afraid of you. You're coming because God is with you and all these things. So she knows that God, that by protecting these men, she's also protecting God's anointed in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an element there to, to factor in. And... Uh, you she's know, saving their lives and she's choosing a side, isn't she? That's right. Now, is it wrong to lie? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wrong to lie. But again, we talked about this. But it would have been wrong for her not to lie in well, this situation too. Yeah. And I don't know the full, you know, it's funny. We have all these questions. What if, um, it, yeah, I would say that if she deprioritized um, a human life just, just so she didn't lie, that mm-hmm. would be like like a weird thing to do. Yeah. Right? Because it's probably, yeah. Because, but if she's thinking... In her heart, if I don't lie here, God will spare these people because I know it's God. If she had that in mind, I'm sure there's different factors there that, that apply. It, yeah, it was but, like a point of decision for Rahab. Yes. Though. Like, do I, do I, do I put my trust in my physical king that if I tell the truth, right, that there's men, Israelite men, hiding in in my house, right, that he can have them and then he'll spare my life, or do I gamble and lie to my physical king who technically has... And put her life on the line. And and put all of my faith in that God will actually do through his people what yeah. he said he's going to do and he will still spare, spare me. Right. Well, I'm, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think that she must lie. That's what I'm saying. I don't think that she had to and there was nothing, nothing at all she could do. See, I think it was the best choice... Right. In her, given her situation, based on what we know, like we don't really know the. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think the only like. argument is that. Yeah. Like, I, I think the only argument that we can make is that she she, did she made her best choice. That's exactly at that what. It, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Is it possible that you know 
uh, if she didn't lie, she told the truth. But her intentions were, we need to save these people, but I can't lie. She's lying to an evil government. No, I know. She's lying I, to an I, I evil know, king. I know, but I know. But to hear what I'm saying, if she, yeah. know, if she had, for, if for whatever reason, she's like, I know the Ten Commandments. God doesn't want me to lie to do all these things for whatever reason. Yeah. Okay. It, now, I'm going to talk more about this in a second. But the point is, if it's so, if she had all those... The, the, the right intentions, everything in place. Yeah, I think it's possible. And maybe the, you know, you hear about Corey Templeman's sister. Mm-hmm. So sometimes God, if you, if your, if your heart is fully into something. Well, she you know, died for that. Yeah. She died for that. Right. And, and other maybe, people died for that. Right. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but other people did live too. And people were spared in that process. Mm-hmm. It's a long story. But my point is, is that, yeah, I think it's possible. I'm not going to say that God made her lie. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that she did all that she could do to save these people's lives. Yeah, she right. was she she was in a situation where, for all intents and purposes, it looks like her best option right. was to lie. Now, and so that's there's also did. another problem with this. Question. There's like it's like it's like in war, right? right. Murder is wrong. Yeah. But sometimes murder is not is no longer considered murder. It's considered just. Yeah, I know. Because you're in war. Yes. So like, is it always wrong to end a human life? Yes. But sometimes you're in a position where you have to make that choice. Exactly. Because we live in a fallen world. Right. So like whether you're looking at a, a bigger sin like murder right. or a lesser sin like lying... And, and, You're still sometimes and faced the irony with- here is that we call it a lesser sin in this specific context. That's why I did quotes. I know, because lying technically is what causes murder. So it's like sure. it's deeper of the sins. Anyways, besides it's that. It is sin, the, yeah. uh, but there are uh, different consequences. In different uh, repercussions, right? Yeah. So anyways, the point here is and some are worse than others. Some, yep. some make you more depraved than others. Absolutely. So now, but the, here's what I want to say. Do not lie is also not a Ten Commandments. It's do true. Not, it's do not bear false witness. So the, this whole dichotomy of the question doesn't work. Yeah. Because... Sorry, the dichotomy of the question. The question inherently is just, it's, it's kind of contradictory. Now, bearing false witness is still lying. It's, yes. But it's lying with the purpose of getting your neighbor yes. accused. That's just, it's, it's, it's different. Of a crime or convicted. Right. It's more so societal yeah. within a societal framework than it is don't lie wholesale. Because what, what the Ten Commandments does not include, it does not include lying to yourself, self-deception. Mm-hmm. Let's include that. So clearly, it can include that. And we know in Leviticus, it does. Don't lie. It just says that. Um, but at the same time, the Ten Commandments does not include don't uh, lie to yourself. Don't lie in general. It's about bearing false witness to your neighbor. Mm-hmm. And that's very specific because there's different forms of lies. So it's, so the Ten Commandments are societally structured. Mm-hmm. And I, Rahab, again, is not part of this society at the time of her lie. Mm-hmm. So it's like She becomes a part of it. I know. But She's rewarded. I know. But I'm saying she did all the best types, in a sinful circumstance. So, anyways, so there's just no contradictions. All I'm trying to say is that she's not bound to anything, and the Ten Commandments are obviously societal. They're not like her personal convictions at the time, or even just in general. So, they eventually become that. So, my uh, as as a side note here, I will add because I think that answers the question. Um, it's interesting to note that the Ten Commandments, this kind of ties into our Old Testament stuff. We talked about the um, whether or not Old Testament laws apply today. The Ten Commandments themselves are primarily societal. And people take them to be like the bedrock of, of how you should live your life, mm-hmm. right? Of everything. But technically... Most of our Western laws are built yes, on the Ten Commandments. Yes, exactly. And that's useful in a societal mm-hmm. framework, the Ten Absolutely. Commandments. However, they're not the basis of individual... Salvation or anything like that, which is really interesting to me. So when, when Jesus is told, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He doesn't quote the Ten Commandments. Fair enough. Yeah, he quotes the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 6. And then he also quotes Leviticus nineteen eighteen, love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't even quote the Ten Commandments, right? Because he says, from those hang the Ten Commandments and the right. rest of the laws. Everything. Everything else. Why? Because the Ten Commandments are societal. Yeah. They're a societal contract. They're not... Based off of love of God and love of neighbor. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's the point, right? And loving the God and neighbor fully to the yeah. full extent. What does this mean? Yeah, of the law. What does this look like? Exactly. So that's what, that's what's really interesting. So that's another reason why it's okay. So you, unless you have your 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 heart purified and sanctified by God, and you're actually sincere, the external laws depend on that. Mm-hmm. We're talking about you need to have Christian to have Christians and not just a Christian society. Mm-hmm. Of course, Christian society will just fall apart. There's no Christians in it, mm-hmm. right? You need to have the heart right before you can get the, the laws right. And here, you see that actually be in play. Uh, Jesus says you need to have the heart right, your love of God, heart, soul, strength, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself first, mm-hmm. right? Then 
the Ten Commandments will work. The societal laws will work. So that priority structure is really important. Um, anyways, I don't know. We kind of ranted there at the last question. It was a lot of ranting. Yeah, I know. Okay. And, and we probably stepped in it because I know this is a really controversial issue within Christianity for some reason. And I, I, what is? I, lying. Oh. Very controversial, which to me is very it, interesting. Well, okay. Well, it is. Well, it, it's like, well, it is like lying. I don't think it's that, con- I don't okay. think it should be as controversial as it is. Okay, good. Lying <laughs> is fundamentally like the root of like. Deception. Of, yes. Of, of all sins. Yeah, sure. Like pride. pride. Well, oh, oh, yeah. Pride is a lie. Like one for one. Yes. Because the pride says I can be God. I am God. Okay, that's pride. <laughs> so that's a lie. So what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Pride or lies? I don't know. They're the two root okay. issues. Right, yeah. so it's like pride is a lie in substance, ontologically. They're the yes. same thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that works. At the same time, right? Uh, things are a little bit gray when it comes to humans, right? And it's, it's so you're yes, just... because we live in a sinful world. So yes. all our all of our circumstances are not going to be black and white. There no, are the, gray the circumstances. Directional. The directional. Yeah, you're inherently doing something with a goal and a direction in mind. They're not just. An on and off switch, you lied, off, you're dead, right? You didn't lie, uh, positive, right? It's like, it just doesn't work that way. But I want to hear what they, what they think. Yeah, I know. I'm done talking. <laughs> I'm like, hold on, Matt yeah, Hogg. Yeah, I, I want to encourage fair. them to comment. Yeah. And let, you know, feel free to rant. Feel free to disagree. Feel free to jump into the controversy or not. I want to hear your questions for our upcoming episodes or if you have any discussion starters that you want us that you think would be fun to hear us, uh, you know, bounce around, please pop those in the comment section down below. I think that's it. Is there anything I'm missing? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe a lot of things. Maybe a lot of things. (laughs) Let us know. All right, guys, until next week, happy reading and happy studying. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high-quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under Donate. Your support really means a lot to us.